Welcome to the Design the Future podcast, where we talk with women leading the way towards a better built world. Design the Future is hosted by me, Lindsay Baker, with Kira Gould. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Design the Future podcast. It's good to be with you again. This is Lindsay. And this is Kira. And yeah, I'm very delighted that we are making the time today, Kira. Good to good to be with you. Good to be with you too. Feels like it's been a little while. We've been slowing the pace just a bit on these, and that's it's changed the, the I don't know the whole uh, dynamic a tiny bit, which is I know, I know. I feel bad, um, but I also have been, as you know, super busy, and I feel I don't know. It's just the phases of life. It was like something pandemic related, something about going back to the school year. Things yep. are, I don't know, opening back up. So yeah, it's it's been an interesting transition time. Hopefully not just for me, but for like a lot of people. Trying yeah, to I think out. that's true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the new Seasons and whatnot, school's back in session. That does feel different. I have a, a school-aged child, as I've mentioned before. So that's definitely a transition for me every year at this time. Yeah. Um, all good. Yeah. And we're, we're recording this the week after green build for those of you um, who may have participated in that. And also UN climate week happened last week. Um, so it was kind of an interesting time where it felt like a lot of, a lot of good conversations and activities and reconnections were happening. Um, and yeah, just appreciative hearing from those of you that were getting to see your friends back in person for the first time in a couple of years um you know just maybe like the, those moments where we re-emerge from our shells of the work that we're all doing individually to talk about the collective work so uh yeah that was also kind of a nice moment that that I'm I'm feeling right now this week is that like uh you know when when we come out of our our shelves and talk to each other about how we're progressing. So it's, it's been, it's been a good couple of weeks, I guess, in that sense. I hope, I don't know if you've been feeling that Kira. A little bit, a little bit. I have not had an opportunity to see very many folks in person yet. Although I'm hopeful that my attitude about that will be shifting. My son actually turns 12 today. So we will be getting his Yay. vaccination this afternoon, not to make <laughs> the, totally timestamp this, this conversation. That's yeah, well, happy birthday to him. Yeah, um, it's going to change the our the mental model of our family around how safe we feel and all those things. So that's kind of fun. Um, that's awesome. Yeah. What a strange thing, though, to be a twelve year old right now and to have that be like the milestone that you're celebrating is like, and now I can get vaccinated. How uh, wild that is! But I'm glad to hear it. Um, I hope he doesn't have bad side effects with the vaccine. I think it'll be all fine. We're really looking forward to it. It's going to be good. great. Great. <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> um, cool. Yeah. It's been, I don't know. It's uh, I'm, I'm hopeful. We've been watching a lot to see how, how it's going with the kids going back to school um, trends. It feels, um, feels better than last year. That's for sure. My partner's teaching again, um, a small class in person just starts today. Yep. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I don't know. It's, it's exciting. Uh, and it's exciting, interesting. wracking all of the things. Well, it's just yeah. interesting too, what we can all get used to, I think. I mean, I, 
we're, you know, my son gets tested every week now for school and, you know, and that's now we're just used to it, right? Like there's a lot of things that a year or two ago, I didn't think we would fact, you know, would be embedded in our lives, but mm-hmm. it's worth it. <laughs> yeah. Do yeah. Um, I'm so glad. Yeah. Yeah. New, new normals all over the place. Well, for those of you listening that are still experiencing some of the, you know, all, all the hardships and coping with not getting out there and being with people in person. I hope you're feeling at least some sense that we get to interact together again in some way. That's right. Um, yeah. Right. Well, this has been a little bit of that along the way for me. I keep thinking that the podcast is my, is a little social moment for me. <laughs> so every so often during the entire pandemic. So I, I still feel a lot of gratitude for it. And I'm super excited about our guest today. Um, we are really, really excited to have Lisa Heshong with us today. Thank you so much for joining us, Lisa. Happy to be here. Well, we're delighted to have you. I'm going to do an intro of Lisa for those who are not familiar with her, and then we will jump into some questions. Lisa is a fellow of the Illuminating Engineering Society, and she was founding principal of the Heshong Mahone Group, HMG, and a licensed architect. Um, and at HMG, Lisa led the research team that found a correlation between daylight and classrooms and improved student performance and daylight and retail sales. She is author of Thermal Delight in Architecture, which is considered something of a cult classic in green building circles. Many of you may be familiar with it. Her newest book, Visual Delight in Architecture, Daylight, Vision, and View, was published this year by Rutledge and explores new findings on the physiological, cognitive, social, and cultural importance of daylight and view in our everyday environments. Uh, Lisa also loves to sail, ride horses in the Santa Cruz Hills, and play with her grandchildren. And uh, Lisa, to get us started, I hope that you can tell us a little bit about how and why you got involved with architecture. Uh, sustainability, and especially the study of the experiential aspects of of architecture and also teaching and education. What has been your path, if you can tell us a little bit of your story? Well, that's a really long story because I've been at it for a really long time. (laughs) And um, my interest in architecture goes back to 1964 when I was 12 years old. And I was in seventh grade in middle school. And I had older brothers who had already been through that middle school. And they had taken this wonderful class in drafting from an amazing teacher. And I had watched what they'd done a few years ahead of me. And I was just smitten. And so I wanted to do that too. But in 1964, girls weren't allowed to take the drafting class. We were supposed to take cooking and sewing and um, health. um, And the boys took drafting and woodshop and electronics and health. So I launched a campaign. I decided that this was terribly unfair. I launched a campaign and I got all of my friends and all of my teachers and everybody I could find in the school to sign a petition that girls should be allowed to take a drafting class. And I spent every free moment at school, break, lunchtime, collecting these signatures until I had a thousand signatures. And I took this pile of yellow 
paper to the principal with all these signatures. And he, of course, had heard that I was doing this. Um, so he welcomed me into his office, sat me down and looked at me straight in the eye and said, well, Lisa, you know, this is not a democracy. <laughs> Which point, you know, my jaw dropped. I was just stunned that I'd done all this work and he thought it was trivial and inappropriate. But luckily this amazing teacher who was very young himself, he was probably just in his twenties and very idealistic. He was in my corner. So he negotiated a deal that if I could recruit two other girls to take the seventh grade drafting class with me when we were eighth graders for our eighth grade elective, we could get in. So I did, and I loved it. And I continued with that teacher for another two years. He ran amazing advanced classes in junior engineering and sort of senior thesis projects that you could do as a ninth grader. And I took on the challenge of designing a multi-generational household development where people could build a house and then gradually age into it and have families and have three or four generations within this development. And this is in 1966. Um, so he really got me thinking about what it takes to design neighborhoods that will sustain over time. After that, nobody came close to his level of teaching. This guy was really amazing. Um, and I got to Berkeley, registered in architecture and completely fell out of love because the, this was a program that was pre-revolution and it was really constrained. And I left that and in, went off to an experimental major to study ecology and sort of environmental planning um, and got quite a grounding in environmental sciences and then eventually went on to MIT to get a graduate degree in architecture and finally became a real architect. So it was a long path. It was ultimately, you know, 10, 15 years before I really realized that vision of becoming an architect. It's amazing, Lisa, to hear that story and think about how much persistence you had to show and how many other wonderful people might have become architects if they hadn't hit the barriers, you know, either you know, women of your generation that didn't become architects because they never had that opportunity when they were young, but then also like all the people that have come into architecture programs like Berkeley, it was at that time and just left and never came back, you know, and they just are in some other field now. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised knowing you, 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 I, you I run into it. them all the time. I have so many conversations with my dentist or my CPA who says, I started in architecture, but then, you know, I had to get more practical or it, you know, so yeah. it, it seems to be a very common story that people start and try, but then move off yeah. somewhere else. So you became an architect after many years. Tell us a little bit about what you did with your career, uh, you know, at that point after you left MIT and, uh, 
And, th and then we get to start talking about books. Well, sure. Um, actually, that was another very yeasty time. Um, I was at MIT in the late 70s and during the Carter years and the energy crisis. Um, and so we became very, very interested in energy efficiency and what was called appropriate technology at the time. That was kind of the catch-all term of what would be called sustainable technology now, is appropriate technology. Um, and I made connections with a bunch of other MIT recent grads who were researching how to best do passive solar design. It was a little firm up in New Hampshire called Total Environmental Action. Uh, no hubris there at all. Um, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> and we were kind of a bunch of kids fresh out of our graduate program that didn't know that we couldn't change the world. Um, and so we just dove in and um, ended up getting a lot of research contracts from the newly minted Department of Energy, um, how to design passive solar buildings. It was a wonderful moment in time, but it didn't last very long. Um, to me, it's amazing how, how short that time period was. It was really four years. Um, and then Ronald Reagan was elected and his campaign promise was to dissolve the Department of Energy. Jimmy Carter had put um, solar panels on the White House. The greening of the White House was a big deal. Ronald Reagan stripped all that off, sent everybody packing and basically set us back by 30 years um, with that political change. My husband, who had also gone to MIT with me and worked with me at the Total Environmental Action Firm in New Hampshire, we were both kind of in need of a new job because all of our contracts were evaporating. And so we decided to um, pick up and moved it back to California, back to my California. And I became a design architect working in San Francisco firms he went into consulting, working with Sim Vanderen, um, Vanderen Calthorpe. Um, and at some point we decided to merge our efforts. Um, and so we found a way where basically I left architectural design and joined him in consulting. And we started our consulting firm, the Heshang Mahan Group. Um, so, and that, that was a really wonderful decision. That was um, a truly brilliant career move because it enabled us to reinvent the kind of work that we had been doing at TEA and find funding for it um, and build an amazing team of people that were also passionate about doing that kind of work um, and kind of recreate that camaraderie that we had had in New Hampshire. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I can imagine. And I love hearing these stories about the teams that, that came up and, you know, um, it is a joy to get to bring people together who, who care about uh, 
these issues and give them space to do the work. Yeah, when, the when you, you find the right people and you can pull them together and give them work to do and they're happy mm-hmm. about it, it's, you know, it's just Nothing win-win better. all the way around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let's start talking about books. Um, I'm curious, before we start talking about your new book, we want to talk for a minute about Thermal Delight. Um, and um, I mean, I remember the first time I read it and it was just unlike any other book that I had read about, about buildings. Um, I read it when I was at Berkeley, um, for sure. Um, it's a, it is a total classic. And it's not just about thermal comfort, um, it, but it, it's, it's about this bigger topic of the experience. And so part of what we were hoping you could start talking, you could talk to us about is why you wrote the book in the first place. What is it that you were trying to get across in that moment? Um, and like, why, you know, why was it written in, in, in such a different way? I guess, than, than the books that we have, you know, these textbooks, et cetera. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, sure. Um, Thermal Delight did not start out as a book. It was my master's thesis at MIT. Um, and then it got picked up and published pretty much as is. So as a master's thesis, I was immersed in this new world of passive solar design and appropriate technology and just becoming an architect launching into the design world. So it was really an effort at a synthesis of all my past experience and learning and how this could be applied to that new challenge of designing passive solar buildings. Um, So it pulled on my experience of travel being in India. It pulled on a lot of my undergraduate education in environmental sciences, um, what I had learned about physiology and about how animals adapt to different environments. Um, And so it was really me struggling with a synthesis of all these different directions that I had been through um, and trying to pull it together into a document that would be meaningful to designers. Um, You know, so, and it was what I could achieve within the time span of the year of writing a master's thesis in an architecture program. I think one of the interesting decisions was in facing this, I approached it as a designer, not as an engineer. I didn't feel like I needed to master the ASHRAE Handbook of Fundamentals before I could say anything about thermal comfort because I was bringing very different experiences to that question. Um, And to the credit of my advisors, the dear Edward Allen and other people that were at MIT at that time, they supported that. Um, So that's the story behind Thermal Delight. And that's why it's a little book that tries to pull in lots of different perspectives focused on this one issue of how do you use thermal sensation as a design element? Um, What does it mean? 
But the structure that I chose to use, and again, this is sort of reflecting my previous education, first looking at physiology, then looking at sensual experience, then looking at emotional attachment, then looking at cultural implications, that four-part level proved to be a really effective way for me to think about many design issues. Um, mm. And so I've used it many times and it, and it you know, so it's, it spans all the way from culture, from genetics to poetry. Um, and I think that any good building should have all of those elements. That's amazing. Um, well, if, if you haven't already read the book as a listener, I'm hoping that that convinces you to read the book, uh, Thermal Delight in Architecture. It is very um, it is, it is, um, you know, a short read and just a profoundly impactful one. Um, so, uh, thank you for talking about that. It's really great also just to hear about that structure because it brings us in to talk about the new book. Um, can you tell us about visual delight? What prompted you to write it? Who is it for? And, and why is it important right now? Well, people had been asking me to to write a book about daylighting um, and to do another version of Thermal Delight for years um, because it had that history. And in my consulting work, I had really very much focused on daylight and how, and the human factors relating to daylight. Um, but that was all consuming. Running a consulting business is a lot of work. <laughs> Um, in addition to being a mom and raising kids and, you know, trying to balance all those things in life. So I did not have the bandwidth to ever consider that until after I retired. Um, but then I took a trip to Australia to speak at a couple of universities there and ran into quite a number of graduate students who had read Thermal Delight and were trying to extend the ideas in that in their doctoral research work. And I went, my goodness, it's, it's still prompting people to take on new ideas. And I realized that I could use that same structure and that same voice and try to synthesize this career's worth of experience on design and researching daylighting. Um, so I started to ponder that and I realized from that first question where I asked myself, could I do this to publication? That was six years. Not that I planned it to be that long, but that's, you know, that's the cycle of writing a book. Um, and so I sort of gradually pulled it together into its form, but turns out it's much longer than Thermal Delight. <laughs> Indeed. It, it's an entirely different weight and size and everything. But as you said, it's you're you're trying to cover a career's worth of material. It's a, it's a totally different um, a totally different exercise, but I am very intrigued with how you organized visual delight. And I wanted to ask you about that. It's in four parts, prediction, perception, motivation, and meaning. Um, can you talk a little bit about that organizational structure um, and 
you know, why, why it was important to the body of work that you're presenting? Sure. Well, again, it's repeating the same structure which I used in Thermal Delight. And the chapters in Thermal Delight are necessity, delight, affection, and sacredness. Um, I had originally thought I would use those same words, but they didn't quite work with daylighting. Um, but the structure is the same. And so the first chapter perception in the new book is really focusing on sort of the cellular level, the, the physio physiological science of seeing and our relationship to the visual environment. So it, it's the very sciencey part. The second part on perception is really focusing on individual um, sensory intake and the cognition that goes into how we perceive the environment. Um, and so this is very much at the individual level. The third part, motivation, starts to move into more of our emotional relationships with others and the physical environment and the social constructs that set up. And so now we're talking about groups and social structures and social decisions. So that includes economics and real estate and city planning and codes and standards and sort of how we choose to construct our buildings and also our emotional relationships with those buildings and with people in those buildings. And then finally, the last section on meaning is really looking at the cultural context. And I think of this as the intergenerational transmission of knowledge um, and how our particular culture values and prioritizes what it chooses to invest in. Um, so these are really how, how do we make decisions and how do we prioritize what's important for us in the environment and how do we transmit that to the next generation. So it's kind of building in scale um, from you know, this individual cellular level up to multi-generational cultural memes. Um, but again, I think that all of those levels are important in how we design buildings. And that's why this has been a useful structure for me to think about design problems. Absolutely. I think it makes it a very navigable structure just in terms of understanding it. And for listeners that are not aware, I am a non-architect reader. <laughs> I mean, I'm very interested in this topic, obviously, but it, but I'm not an architect. And so for me, that, that progression that it, you make is very meaningful and powerful. It made it a very natural way to sort of get deeper and deeper into the topic. And I thought it was really well, well organized. Um, so I wanted to ask you, there's a, in the chapter called Designing with Daylight, you write, I think one of the most basic design concepts to understand about daylight is that it is big. I love this. Very big. We can choose to let little bits of daylight permeate our buildings, but there is always more outside waiting to come in, an atmospheric ocean of light. By adding more holes in our buildings, like a colander, daylight will fill the space within as big as we want it to be. Actually, the bigger the volume of a space, the easier it is to daylight, end quote. I just love that idea and it was so powerful. It really brought to mind a big um, you know, image for me. 
But you go on to talk about William Lamb's book, Sunlighting as a Form Giver for Architecture, in which he, you say, argued that the form of a building should be the essential determinant of lighting quality, end quote. And you note that this is a challenging paradigm shift for thinking about daylighting design. I'd love it if you could talk a little bit about this shift and your thinking about it, especially for readers and listeners who've not been studying or practicing in this way already. Well, sure. Um, I think you need to understand, first of all, that I spent a lot of my career working with electric lighting designers um, who are using point sources. And they typically are coming into a building after the building has been designed to illuminate it. And that's really the practice of illuminating engineering design these days. But William Lamb, and I have a little bit of a story about that in terms of my history. Um, his book, which was put together in the 1980s, is really challenging that if we're going to use sun as our primary illuminant in buildings as a form of energy efficiency and renewable energy, then the form of the building determines the illumination patterns in the building. Um, and so that that should be primary. The example I like to use is kind of to change mindsets is if you think of designing a patio for your house that you're going to use um, during the daytime, of course it's daylit. Why, why would a patio not be daylit? <laughs> There's daylight everywhere. Um, and so during the day, you use that patio with the available daylight and um, you provide shade where you need it so you don't get too hot or too glary. But then as you progress into evening, you might need a little bit more local light to continue the party. And then as the party continues on into the night, you add additional electric light for that social gathering. But the electric light is used in a very, very different way. It's not trying to replicate the experience of daylight. It, it's much more intimate. It's creating this intimate social focus at nighttime. You don't try to light the entire environment. Um, and so it's a very different design challenge to think about using electric light just for the night or just to supplement when daylight is starting to fade and the activities continue on if we think about our buildings the same way, so that they will inherently be daylit, um, that's a very different design challenge as a starting point. And then electric light becomes the supplement that you use to add a little extra bit when it's needed or to continue the activities on into the night as appropriate. Does that That is it? super cool. <laughs> I love, I just love the like description of this. It's just, I don't know. It's the, nar the narrative, the way that you describe space and space design is in a more narrative way is just uh, delightful to me. So yes, thank you. Um, I, so I want to ask about an aspect that, um, as you know, I care about a lot, which is the you know, you, you talk a lot in the book about all of the evidence that daylight and views are very essential for a healthy human habitat. Um, obviously, some of your work uh, in that, especially in schools, has just been 
fundamental to our understanding of how to design. Um, and so um, you, you say in the book, um, you argue that embracing this will result in, quote, a renaissance of design and research, and that daylight should become the primary illuminant for any space where people spend a substantial part of their day. Um, so I'd like to talk about that a little bit, about that imperative and um, what your device, your advice is for design teams and owners of buildings in how they can make that work. Uh, where do you think the, where do you think people should be focusing their time in trying to make sure that people have that access to daylight and views in, in their day, daily lives? Well, I think the, the term access to daylight and views is really what's key because mm. we know that people move around. We know that things change. You were working in an office and suddenly you're working from home during the pandemic. Um, our approach to workplace design has been changing very quickly with new technology, um, people moving within buildings. So we're no longer confined to a given private office or a cubicle or a set environment. Um, there's a lot of fluidity. And so I often think of exposure to daylight and to view as, some, as kind of a nutritional element that we need on a continuous basis and that you might even need to have little snacks of during your day, right? Go have a little daylight snack. Um, one of the really important realizations I came to, especially in the process of working on this book, is that the circadian stimulus that is provided by daylight is really, really fundamental to our health on so many levels. And I try to give the reader a taste of that in the book. Um, so for metabolic health, we need to synchronize with the daylight patterns of the planet. And looking out a window actually gives us the strongest signal that we can get inside of a building, even more so than daylight illumination. Um, it's not only brighter than the daylight illumination inside of the space, because you're looking at the outside world, but it's also way more interesting. <laughs> and given the opportunity, it's what people tend to look at. So I've pulled together studies trying to quantify this, but we have pretty good evidence that given the opportunity, people look out of windows a lot, very often, very frequently, um, much more often than they're consciously aware of. Um, they tend to glance that way, getting a little circadian snack and then back to work. Um, so providing that opportunity with having interesting, engaging views actually helps reinforce that positive behavior of having circadian snacks and staying in sync with our planetary environment. Um, so it's very rewarding. It has lots of other emotional depth to it, which I go through in the later chapters. Just 
all of which add up to a much healthier, more joyful environment. Um, so given that, and, and we, we have this recurring evidence that people that work in daylight spaces with night views are, are just happier. They're happy with their jobs. They're comfortable. They don't complain about nearly as much about their work environment. They tend to stay in their jobs longer. So all kinds of evidence that it promotes happy outcomes. Um, so why wouldn't you design buildings that enable that to happen for as many people as you possibly can um, and not just for the rich people that can afford it, not just for the boss that got to the top of the pecking order, um, not just for the people you want to impress, but for everybody who, who works there or lives there, everybody gets the opportunity. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, and it's, I mean, it has, it's changed the design industry a lot, understanding that, starting to rethink who gets access to daylight and views, so it's, um, yeah, that's amazing to kind of just go back to these fundamentals, it's still, we still have a lot of work to do, but uh, yeah. Well, you know, I think it's very much an equity issue that mm -hmm. when we are designing buildings, we have a responsibility to make sure that everyone in that building now and in the future will have the healthiest possible environment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, okay, speaking of some of these issues, we're gonna now transition to just the last part of our interview where we wanna talk to you about um, the, the movement. I mean, you talked about starting off this work you know in like a what sounds like an awesome hippie commune in new hampshire uh and like you know That's i don't know how to call that way but... about it uh, <laughs> but i'm just, you know just paraphrasing uh <laughs> sounds awesome uh but no i want to hear how you honestly i mean if you can start as big picture as where did you think we would be in the year 2020 um how much have we progressed um you know, but but really what we want to know is how do you think we're doing right now? How do you think that the movement or the green building industry is doing at uh, making the transformations that it needs to make? Well, that's an excellent question. And that's, you know, are, are we headed in the right direction? We should be asking that every other day. Um, frankly, where we are today in 2020, 2021, I thought we would be here 30 years ago. Um, and that's part of the setback that we were doing so well in the late 70s and achieving so much and thought that we were being transformational and the setback and the backlash were huge. So, I frankly am afraid that that can happen again. Um, that to the extent that sustainability or um, resilience or any of this is a fashion, fashions change, they come and go, people's priorities shift, and we can lose ground very, very quickly. So finding ways to invest in permanent 
change, which to me is permanent change in cultural priorities, is really, really essential. Um, it's great that there are so many people that are enthusiastic um, and want to find their part in the quote movement or however you would describe it. Um, I personally think that one of the challenges we need to do is we need to bring more scientists, more biologists, more neurologists into a concern about the design of the built environment because that's where we all live, right? That's our habitat and it endures for decades and centuries and millennium, right? We have a huge impact on the design of the environment, but that has not been an issue that is taught or is concerned within those disciplines. So somehow those of us in the you know, architecture, planning, interior design world have to find a way to reach out and bring those people in. Um, Lindsay, I think you know that there's been a wonderful surge in the world of public health um, and people in public health really paying attention to especially urban design. Um, and now with these various standards in terms of healthy buildings, um, it's becoming much more of a public health issue, which is great, but there's still um, so much more that can be done. And similarly, I would urge that people are really interested in this, go get the education themselves and go learn more biology. <laughs> biology is fundamental and the future is really uncertain. We don't know what the new trends are gonna be. We don't know what the new pandemic is gonna be or what the new technology is going to be. But we know that humans are gonna be the same biological package that we are today, right? We don't evolve that fast. And so getting, getting things right for our fundamental biology who we have evolved to be as humans really gives us a foundation that will take us into the future. So that's why I wrote the book, to try to bring people who are interested in buildings to understand they need to go deeper into the biological foundation of who we are and why we need certain kinds of habitat. Right. You know, that is so powerful, Lisa. And I think, um, you know, one of the problems there is a little bit of the commodification of the built environment. The way you talk about it, it's this, you know, we create these buildings that are with us for this long period of time. Well, they're in this construct of real estate. And so we are forced then to put a value. And I mean, I, I do think we still could do it using all of the science and knowledge that you're talking about, try to better quantify what the value of those health benefits are to the owners and over time, right? Because they actually do have an impact and, and people are their most expensive, the most expensive part of their whole enterprises usually. So it, there are, there's just a little disconnect that we're not quite making those connections to like flip that over to get to, to put it into real estate terms, right? Like, so that people really yeah. see that value. Well, 
frankly, Americans are hugely driven by wanting to be able to quantify everything. Of course. And, you know, tell us, tell us what it's worth. We, we need to put a dollar value on everything we do. Um, not all cultures are as focused on making decisions based on cost-benefit analysis. Some can make decisions based on right. logic. <laughs> logically makes sense. Um, so, and frankly, economics shifts all over the map, right? I've spent a career doing cost-benefit analysis on energy efficiency measures and then economic shifts, um, but they are still the right answer for lots of good reasons. So, Yes, putting a value on things is important, but we also need to look at these bigger cultural values. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Lisa, I knew that we would have way more than we could cram into one episode to talk about with you. I do want to, we, we have a last question we like to ask, which is um, if you have someone you'd like to mention that you are inspired by these days, we, we like to find out who our guests are inspired by and, and who, you know, gives them hope or something to think about. Can you share who that might be? Well, I, I have a lot of hope for the young people I know that are recently coming out of colleges and, and setting off in their careers. And I am really very hopeful given the passion that I see there. My own children are working in this field. Um, their friends are amazing and everybody I meet is amazing. So that gives me hope. But in terms of who I'm really inspired by, um, this fellow who's like 94 years old, um, David Crawford, helped found the International Dark Sky Association. He dedicated the last 30 years of his life to changing our ideas about light pollution and how important the preservation of dark skies are to our cultural heritage. Um, he's just absolutely my hero that he he pulled it off <laughs> he started with an idea that nobody knew about and in 30 years time he's made it a global issue um, so I think he's an excellent example of how powerful one person can be if they have an idea that they really understand how to put forward well that is a fantastic way for us to wrap up with you, Lisa, because you have done the same thing in many ways, I think, for these, these issues of sort of what our, what our bodies and our minds need uh, from the shelter that we, that we have um, and what, how we can design for that. So um, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. We really appreciate having you. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation and thank you so much for setting it up and enabling it to happen. Absolutely. It's been a delight. And that is it for us this week on the Design the Future podcast. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. Uh, please leave us a review on Apple if you haven't done it yet. It really matters. It helps people find us. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time. Bye.